So the Bible readings, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Please keep your Bibles open. Let me come at this with uh, an interesting question then. Here it is. Can you do too much for God? In a funny sort of way, all the religions of the world will answer a resounding no to that. Interestingly, actually, I've noticed a couple of people shaking their heads. And all the religions of the world will agree with you and say, no, you can't do too much for God. In fact, most of the religions of the world stick on a guilt trip for not doing enough. And the Christian version of that, superficially, would seem like, yes, 
we never do enough for God. So when we go to the doorstep, there are people who tell us, oh, I'm a Christian, uh, I know I don't go to church as much as I should. And that tells us that they're slipping up on what they think is their duty to God to go to church. And they're not doing that, so they're feeling guilty. Others might be more bullshit about that and say, hey, I'm a believer, but I don't think you need to go to church to worship God. But what are they saying? They're still saying you've got to do something. You've got to worship God. It's just that church isn't always where you have to go to do it. So there's this feeling around that you've got to do something for God. And Christians can get that impression too. But Bible believers answer that question very differently. Can you do too much for God? Yes, is the answer. Even one thing, even doing one thing for God is doing too much for him. And that comes through in that little part of the Bible that David just read to us. And it's about a man who is called David and he lived in five-star luxury. If you look at verse 2, it says, I dwell in a house of cedar. Now that stands out because this is not local, put-it-together material. This house was made from imported luxury so that it's all from outside the country. All the materials that were used were, had to be shipped in and all the people who made it were all external experts that came in. You can see that in chapter 5, verse 11. It's just on the left-hand side of the same page. Chapter 5, verse 11. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messages to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. So this is a house that really stood out from anything else in the country. It was that grand. Cedar spells opulence. And it befits the huge emphasis on royalty that you see emphasized in those first three verses. Have you noticed how when David is spoken about, he is described as the king all the time? Chapter 7, verse 1, now the king lived in his house. In verse 2, the king said to Nathan. Verse 3, Nathan said to the king. So we're talking about a man who is now, like his house, so different to everybody else. This is pure glory. But this man is honest enough to see that it's all back to front. Because he already has told us in chapter 7 verse 1 that it is the Lord that has given him everything. And yet there he is, living with everything, why it seems like God has got nothing. He lives in a battered old tent. And so David says, but there is one thing I can do for God, and that is to upgrade his accommodation. Let me do that. Now, Nathan is the prophet at that time. If you were here at the start of our little journey through 1 Samuel, you'll know that there was initially a prophet called Samuel. He's dead now. Nathan is his replacement. So just like Saul had Samuel as his prophet, 
Nathan is David's prophet. He can see that David's heart's in the right place and he green lights the idea and says, David, go ahead, do all that's in your mind. But that night, God stops Nathan and this project in its tracks. And he sends Nathan to tell David, no, this must not happen. You are not going to build me a house. Now, why would God say such a thing to David? The first thing that you can see, those notes may be helpful to you, is that it is so easy to get God wrong. And the idea of doing anything for God, we're going to see, is to get him very wrong. Now, let me be careful how I put this, because I want you to have a look at verse 5 and tell me what kind of mood do you think, do you pick up in God as he gives Nathan this message for David in verse 5. Go to him, my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now, you might think that God sounds a bit angry there, but actually, I think, if you look at verse 6, he's actually sounding quite playful. David, I've never lived in a tent. That's the flavor of it. And then what you pick up in verses 6 to 8 is great affection. Because the thing that motivates God and if we can put it reverently, drives him on, is his great care for his people. That's why I put people in a box, because that is the big desire that God has to do things for them. And you can see that that's exactly what he's done in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 8. I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. I've been moving about with them in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, uh, I didn't ask them to do anything for me like this. And you might think verse 8, well, now we're looking at David and the spotlight is on him as a VIP. Interestingly, uh, uh, he says that I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. But Notice that David's got a humble role. I know that we had king, king, king three times, verses 1 to 3. The minute God starts speaking to David, uh, to Nathan about David, he's referred to as a servant. Go and tell my servant. And David, in verse 8, is still God's servant. And the reason why he's now a king, if you glance back on the left-hand side to chapter 5, verse 12, is because God's done it, made him king for the sake of of his people. Chapter 5, verse 12, David knew the Lord had established him king over Israel, that he'd exalt his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. That is what motivates God. That is the great driving force. If I, if, if I can put it like this, that is what flicks God's switch. He has his own passionate desire to serve and care for his people. As I said in the notes, uh, he has never done anything else but think about doing that. Interestingly, Ephesians chapter uh, 1 verse 4 says, even before the foundation of the world, this is what he was thinking about, saving his people. It is the great uh, driving motive 
in the heart of God. And that is his project, to save and build up his people. And he has got to do that himself, because frankly, none of you or me will be able to do anything to make that great project happen. It's way above our pay grade to treat God's people the way they should be treated. Only God can do that. And when you look at what he has done in bringing them out of Egypt and doing all those things that he says, can you just imagine? Here's the God. He's just taken his people away from Pharaoh, given them a whole new country. Can you just imagine at that point putting your hand up and saying, God, is there anything I can do? Now he is the one who does all that is necessary for his people. He will build his church, says Jesus, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Nothing's going to stop him. His people are that important. So, for us to try and intervene and do anything to help God with his project is ultimately to get God horribly wrong, not to realize that he has all the motive in the world in himself to get the job done. But let's think about how we might, instead of that, get God right. That's the second heading. And the way to get God right is to understand, I'm hoping that our little children's uh, slot made that point, that this is a God who gives and gives and gives. It's all he's ever done. And it's all he ever will. And it'll really be interesting if you let your eyes glance down, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, the way the I wills roll out. And there's God saying, I will, in verse 10, appoint a place for my people Israel. Uh, um, verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Verse 12, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring and I will establish his kingdom. And in verse 13, I will establish a throne for his kingdom forever. All the I wills that come from God. Now, this is the God who is able, therefore, to look after his people and plans to do that in all the years to come. Now, I know you might think that that's a bit predictable and you would expect the Bible to say that God makes promises and keeps them. But can I suggest to you, when you really get the magnifying glass on the God who keeps his promises, some really important things come out. Let me tell you what they are. First, you will begin to see that this God is an absolutely unique God in the way that he makes promises, in the way that he brings out one I will, I will after another. It is to tell you that this God is active without the involvement of anybody else. He is always the one in the driving seat. And that is unique because in all the other religions, let me say it's unique because when the Bible tells you I will, there is nothing else to be done apart from, I guess, you watch. And so therefore always the 
prophetic parts of the Bible are followed by the history parts of the Bible where you can see that God has done what he said he will do. The only answer to I will, or the only bit that can follow, the only two words that can follow I will is you watch. But in all the other religions of the world, the I will is followed by if you will. It's conditional. If you do this, then God will do that. But in the Bible, the I will stands alone. This is the God who is active. He is unique in the way that reveals himself in that way. So different to anything else. But the second thing to say about this God who makes promises like this is that it inspires confidence in him that he'll keep them because and I hope this doesn't sound too Irish for me to say it that God makes promises and you can believe them because he already has kept them. Let me tell you what I mean. This is something really worth holding on to because it's the way to understand the Bible put really simply it goes like this that all God's promises are actually there in the Old Testament part of the Bible okay and then God starts fulfilling them in the Old Testament part of the Bible itself then he fulfills them again in complete in in full form with the Lord Jesus and then thirdly he eventually fulfills those promises perfectly in his kingdom which we often called heaven so all the promises that God makes in the Old Testament he keeps in the Old Testament and completes in the Lord Jesus and then perfects <coughs> in the kingdom. So each promise has three tick boxes as you look at the Bible. So you see that with these promises you look at verse 10 and you see in chapter 7 verse 10 uh, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Now he told Abraham way back in the first book of the Bible Genesis that he would give Abraham a place called the land of Canaan. Now here they are, they are presently living in it. And Jesus uh, is the one who establishes God's kingdom, shows what it's like to have God around in that part of the world, in that specific place. But of course, the full perfect place that God speaks of is heaven but really it's the recreated world that we're living in now that is when God's perfect place is to be found in the future and so in uh, verse 10 uh, they'll be disturbed no more they'll be given uh, freedom from their enemies now in the Old Testament and in this book we've seen specifically in this book, that the Philistines were the enemies of God's people. And so God promised in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, that he would raise a king that would get rid of their enemies, get rid of the Philistines. Now, that was fulfilled by David, actually, 
by the end of chapter 5, the Philistines are no longer enemies in opposition. They've been dealt with. And then Jesus comes along and he deals with the three main and worst enemies of mankind, not the Philistines, but disease, the devil, and death. And finally, <coughs> everything that creates sadness in the world will be finished with in Revelation 21, in that future kingdom. What about uh, verse uh, uh, 12? Uh, when your days are fulfilled, he promises a king, a future king. Well, God promised Abraham king. <coughs> in his family and now David is a king and much against the odds God has made him king but now there's going to be a king after David dies and his greatest grandson is the Lord Jesus who ultimately will rule the world in his future kingdom and then you Look at verse 13. There'll be a house built for God's name. Now, again, that was fulfilled by David's offspring, who, in the immediate sense of this story, was Solomon. And God made him a house. He knew that, didn't he? Now, it's right that God should have a house, because in the past, when he had a tent, that's because his people were unsettled and moving towards their new country, and therefore it was right for God to move with them. But now that they are settled, it is right that they will have a place that they can now be established as a place to meet with God. That's what a temple is. But Jesus is ultimately the meeting place. If you want to meet with God, you go to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. But the ultimate place where God will live with all his people will be in his future kingdom. Can you see how one thing is followed, one uh, phase is followed by another phase, and the promises are completed so that we can have confidence that they will be completed. If you've got two out of three already <coughs> achieved, it inspires confidence in us that the third stage will also be kept. So there is therefore going to be uh, uh, a full uh, keeping of God's word. You see that actually in verse 14 when uh, he talks about uh, um, uh, the person who followed David as king and he will be like a father to that king and when he commits iniquity he will punish him usually by other people it says here the rod of men and that's certainly true because when the kings that came after David uh, failed God then he took action against them in the end uh, if you know the whole Bible story they were actually taken out of that country by the Babylonians and the Assyrians the Syrians called in Isaiah the rod of God's anger. So it's certainly true that God did that. And actually you could say he did that with Jesus too because when our iniquity came on him, 
Well, then he was put to death by the Jews and indeed by the Romans. So, yep, he was disciplined in that sense. But if you look at verse 15, that isn't where it ended. My steadfast love will not depart from him. And therefore, in verse 16, his house and his kingdom will be established forever. And so love lasts. Now, that is the reason why we have confidence in this God. That is also the reason why we are secure in this God. Because from that last example I gave you, you can see that God's people fail him. Even David's descendants fail him. And yet, that doesn't end the story. This God continues loving them. <coughs> and therefore, that's why his people have hope, because failure doesn't switch off God and his commitment to them. He will work in their favor even when they don't do a single thing for him and they do many things against him. He will still not let them go. Now that is the kind of God that we're talking about when we open up the Bible and see what he does in the area of keeping his promises. And so therefore, this is how to get God right. To understand that here is a God who gives. He is unique in that his I will stand on their own without conditions attached. It is wonderful <coughs> that he inspires confidence. He's kept his promises. And of course he will in the future. And therefore we are secure. Even when we fail, he will discipline but not destroy. Now what does that mean for us as we think about this God for ourselves today? Because you've got to come at it from different angles. People are in different places, aren't they? So therefore they will think about this from different positions. It may be that there are people who are new to Christian things or maybe haven't even begun to think about Christian things very much. But where they have taken a quick look at God, it's like they've done it from the other end of a telescope. You know what happens when you look at the wrong end of the telescope? Things that are reasonably close by seem much further away. Um, <clears throat> I didn't expect you to nod or agree with me at that point because I thought that you were too smart to look at the wrong end of the telescope. Uh, usually the telescope is well marked, you know, the which, which way is the right way. But, but it's true. If you look at the wrong end, things that are close by do appear far away. Now, I want to suggest, actually, it's easy to do that with God by very simply looking at God as if he is the God who makes demands on us. That's like looking at God at the wrong end of the telescope. It will make him look very far away and distant and unapproachable. But if you were to look at him, the right side of the telescope, what brings him nearer is the truth, that he doesn't make demands, he does things to bring his people closer to him. And I want to ask you, doesn't a God like that come across as attractive to you? Does it, want, does it make you want to be part of his people, to be on the receiving end 
of God's care and commitment in that way. Now, I don't want to uh, overload uh, the honey, as it were, by saying, and that's how it always is, and everything is uh, wonderfully uh, bright after that. No, if you were to be part of God's people, then actually the world thinks that we're pretty dim, if that's uh, what we are. And for ourselves, well, we might find it uh, really difficult too, because it affects our pride to constantly go to a God and to get into our minds that we are only ever going to be on the receiving end. That relationship is not something that comes naturally to us. We always want it to be 50-50, or at least to contribute something, but to be in a relationship with this God who does nothing but give is actually quite a hard hit on our pride. And yet, how wonderful to be in relationship with God like this. And I'd want to suggest to you, maybe you're listening to this on our website, maybe you're here, it's a wonderful thing just to ask God to draw you into his people and to make his love known to you in the context of his people, the way that he's done it right from the beginning of time. Secondly, it may be that you're someone who's actually quite used to church and you're quite experienced in going to services like these and you've been to other churches too. Can you see how easy it is for us to end up thinking that uh, uh, God is a God who's just a pushover, he just does things, he doles things out all the time. But there needs to be some concern and care because this is a God who doesn't just simply dole out but he disciplines. And he especially disciplines us when we go into I will do stuff for God mode. And very often actually what happens when we forget the God who gives is that we go into that zone of religion where we have got to do things in order to keep God happy. There's all sorts of religious practices that we need to engage in and enter into to keep this God happy. We're right in the middle of a season called Lent at the moment where people say, well, you've got to give up stuff and chocolates mainly, I think, in order to take the box to make God pleased. Now, we've got to be very careful. God disciplines those who take that approach with him and who ultimately forget the fact that he is the God who gives and they don't respond to him in a way that's appropriate to that. But thirdly, if you are already someone who is a real believer, you might say, well, why then do we go to church? There are lots of people who feel guilty that if they don't go, then somehow they're missing and they're failing on their duty. And that's expressed to us quite often. But why do people then go to church if there's nothing that we're <coughs> meant to be doing for God? 
I'm hoping you realize from what we've studied today that it's really important for us to meet up together so that we constantly feast our eyes on the gracious generosity of God who gives and gives and gives. We need to keep having that injected into us because it's just so easy for us to go down the line of thinking what everybody else thinks, and that is that we've got to do things for him. And we need, therefore, a constant refreshing reminder of what God is like and his fantastic generosity to us. So again and again and again, we grow secure in his love. And the other reason why we meet up is because if God loves his people so much and they are his prized possession, they mean so much to him, well then isn't it great for our hearts to go in the same direction of God's and to love his people as well? We can't love people who we're not meeting with, but it is part of falling into step with God's character and nature that we learn to love those who love him and serve them the way that he does. Not because in some way God chalks it up as a good thing and uh, has some Mars bar rewards for us. No, we do that because it is just a wonderful privilege to be able to uh, be caught up in God's purposes in that way. I suppose really I can't think of a a good example, here's a bad one. Uh, say uh, God wanted me to drive him to Heathrow Airport in his Ferrari. Okay. Uh, would I be up for that? You bet I'd be up for that. I've never driven a Ferrari. I've always wanted to drive a Ferrari. And I've got a birthday coming up next year. <laughs> but that is... That is what I'd really like to do. Now, can you just imagine, if I'm in the pub with my mates after I come back from the airport, do you think I'm going to say, oh, I did got a really good turn today? Guess what I did? I'd be saying, hey, guess what I've been able to do? I've been able to drive a Ferrari. Let me tell you what that's like. Yeah, that's what Christian service is about. It's not saying, well, that was exhausting, but I hope God's happy. <laughs> we say guess what I've got to do today guess what I'm I, an amazing privilege I was able to serve God's people what a gracious God that he will give me even that he's given me enough already but now he adds this what a great privilege I've been given but let me stop there and to give you a chance to uh, think of some questions but first before the questions come why didn't I give you one minute just to talk to God about the kind of things that we've learned today? Maybe if you've never really clocked the fact that this is a God who is so gracious and gives and gives and gives, why didn't you ask God to help you to get a 2020 on that and start thinking that way from now on for yourself, to really get that into your system, to understand the greatness of God in that way? It may be that uh, you felt a little bit resentful that there have been things that you had to do and you feel that God wants you to do them and you do them very dutifully, but uh, really 
Yeah, it's a bit of a bind. Uh, why didn't you use the opportunity just to say sorry to God for the way that you've not really understood how much he's done for you? And uh, you've uh, therefore understood him wrong. It may be that you're someone who wants to ask God to give you a love for his people because that's what he has, that's what drives him, that's what flicks his switch. Lord, please make that the one thing that keeps me going for the rest of my days. That's my one ambition. Well, whatever it is you want to choose to talk to God about, let me give you one minute to do that and then I'll pray and then we'll take the questions after that. Let's have the meter silence first. Let's pray. <laughs>